Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. A third of students are less than happy about their university choice, new research by EY has revealed. The findings suggest that a digital rethink is essential to meet the expectations of students and staff. Universities can address this by putting the needs of the people they serve at the heart of their digital strategies. Learn more about the future of human-centered higher education at theguardian.com forward slash transforming higher education. This message was paid for by EY. Hello and welcome to The Guardian Books Podcast. I'm Claire Armistead. There's a reason why dictators over the centuries have targeted books in their attempts to bring nations to heal. They know, as we do, that the written word wields as much power as any number of warheads. And so this week we look at how the written word itself has fought back, responding to and challenging the politics of the day. But with a twist, as we will be spanning more than a millennium. At London's British Library, we drop into an extraordinary exhibition of treasures from the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. Curator Alison Hudson will be taking us through the exhibition, showing us that the scourge of fake news is nothing new and could be seen written as plain as day as far back as the 8th century. But first, we train our sights on today with an American poet who has just been longlisted for the UK's most prestigious poetry award, the T.S. Eliot Prize. Terence Hayes has been exploring the fissures in American identity for 20 years, ever since his award-winning debut poetry collection, Muscular Music. In November 2016, reeling from the brute fact of Donald Trump's election victory, he returned to that ancient sword of poetic truth, the sonnet, writing one every day of Trump's first 200 days in power. When he came into the studio to talk to Richard Lee, he plunged straight in. American sonnet for my past and future assassin. Are you not the color of this country's current threat advisory and of pom-poms at a school whose mascot is the Clementine, color of the quartered cantaloupe beside the tears of easily bruised bananas cowering in towers of yellow skin, and of Caligula's copper-toned jabberjaw jammed with grapes shaped like the eyeballs of blind people, light as a featherweight monarch, Viceroy, goldfish, pomp and pumpkin pompadour, are you not a flame of hollow hellos and hell no's, a wild tattered spirit versus what? Enemy to foe of those opposed to upholding the laws against what? I know your shade. You are the color of a sucker punch, the mix of flag blood and surprise blurring the eyes, a flare of confusion a contusion before it swells and darkens. So how did this project start? Are these poems a straightforward response to the Trump presidency? Well, even in this poem, I often am thinking about uh, really two tears or two hands, the hand of the citizen and the reader and then the hand of the writer and the 
maker, I guess. So what I will say is part of what I'm trying to do in that poem to to get away from subject is just thinking about color. And I did it in a couple of other poems, but this one was obviously I was just playing with images of orange. And as the poem proceeds, they get a little bit more weird, like the flag, blood and surprise. So in my mind, the color of surprise is yellow. So when you add the yellow and the blood, you get a kind of orange. So it yeah, gets the ripening bruise, yeah. right? Yeah. But again, what I'm trying to do there is focus on the task of a poem that has behind it a color more than the task of a poem that is about explicitly Donald Trump. Yeah, for um, sure. A kind of straightforward response. Sure. In no way straightforward. Right. And so even the sonnet form is often doing that for me. It just gives me a way to not have to be so much a prisoner to subject and in some ways so much a prisoner to my own kind of basic emotional reactions to things. So I'm often just looking for surprise, surprise blurring the eyes through through any exercise. And so this poem, too, is both that a kind of poetic exercise and also an engagement of the thing that's sort of overwhelming me. So when did you start writing them? Um, if the election was done on the 8th or the 9th, I think I f- finished uh, two by the 10th. Mm-hmm. So November 10th, I think I had about two. And by November 11th, I was writing a few more. And they were just called For My Past and Future Assassin. And then that Sunday, November 13th, was the birthday of a poet who has uh, really guided me through the project, Wanda Coleman. And so I think perhaps if her birthday wasn't on November 13th, I mean, maybe the whole book would be called For My Past and Future Assassin. But I definitely was excited about her coming into it because she, you know, she was a friend. She'd passed away in 2013, and I, I wanted to use her kind of intensity and even rawness as a way to kind of be able to make a poem every day. Really. And was it clear to you that it was going to be a kind of long-form project? No, I mean, I, well, I guess that's not quite true. Um, maybe by December, I realized that I wasn't going to be able to write anything because of the volume of, let's just say, the culture or the volume of politics, the volume of uh, media around it. So, you know, my initial plan was just to write them for four years. I was in conversations with friends who thought that this administration was going to be short-lived, and I was even having bets with friends about whether they'd be out and like, you know, uh, by the summertime. Days, weeks, months, yeah. I I never thought that was gonna be true, but I did think that as long as uh, this was the environment that I was gonna need to write the poems. Um, But you know, I got through those first 200 and this is what we have. The problem is I still uh, feel compelled to write them. So I've actually written a couple. I I finished one last week, but I'm I'm not gonna make a second volume of the books and they actually are back to where they were before I knew it was going to be an extended project, which is to say I'm still coping with the the noise. Uh, even if those poems, I haven't sent them out. I think I, this year I've probably written maybe three more. They're still coming. Yeah, yeah. because we're so, still in the same water, essentially. So, so take us back to the, the moment, the day. What was happening when you started writing that first one? I think it was just a response to, um, actually, you know what? I believe that... Somewhere around there, I had to give a speech at the National Book Award. So I was not nominated, but I was given the Literary Prize, Literary Award to an organization called Kabi Kanem, which I had a relationship with. And so they asked me to present it to them. And this is immediately after the election. It could have been the week after or so. And so John Lewis was there and some other people. And I really fully expected that that was going to be a pretty big part of all of the conversations and you know it wasn't and so I gave my speech and it's online I think I said something like we have seen what the country looks like with the black president and now we're seeing what it looks like after 
Um, so it's like after waking up from the dream, what do you wake up to? And so the sort of surprise for me was that I think everybody wasn't sure how to respond. We were still trying to figure it out. And for me, as a poet who just sort of writes every day, um, I was figuring it out in the poems. And that's essentially what this is. So sometimes it's very explicit, this question of what does this country look like now? Um, and sometimes it was, you know, metaphorical. So the poems are not exclusively about Trump, nor that I ever want them to be exclusively about Trump, but they are, you know, he's always in the water because he's always in the air, uh, just as America is. So there is much about, you know, what it just means to be alive and be American as it is about this particular moment. Yeah, for sure. You, I mean, you mentioned Wanda Coleman. What's the kind of link between these and her work? Well, Wanda Coleman, she grew up in Watts. Uh, she had two kids by the time she was 20. She was actually in workshops with Bukowski, Charles Bukowski, and some other writers. And she published, you know, broadly and prolifically, but, you know, it's very difficult to make your life as a writer. So she actually wrote for the soaps. Uh, I think it was like Days of Our Lives. She had such an interesting life. She was a, a waitress. She worked for the Peace Corps. And, and I met her on a, on a panel like in 2002 or so. And she was angry because she essentially was a woman who had devoted her life to poetry but was not receiving the same kind of validation that I have received. And so the reason that we became friends is because I knew what her work was. I mean, had I not, she never expected people to know her work. Although, as I said, she published broadly and prolifically in various genres. But the thing about that is that her work also is very much engaged with the kind of anger. I mean, I got a couple of poems memorized that would be, we'd go off script if I did <laughs> something. But I could, I could show you like just reciting a couple of her sonnets, but they're uneven. And I am a, like a, a obsessive reviser. And so in order to write a sonnet every day, I decided just to embrace that notion of like the immediacy of it and even the unevenness of it. So maybe with these 70 sonnets, they look a little bit more clean but you know I wrote 200 of them and they're not all good I mean some of them are just I mean I, I guess I can't describe them except to say that they're not all good the, but these, I, these are the ones that, that, that survived the sifting right exactly and so and I'm thinking of various ways to kind of get those 70 you know to, to hold together here but the real impetus to get to 200 was to not be perfect and to allow myself to be angry uh, unreasonable irrational and so some of that flickers here, but that's kind of what her work is like. And as a, you know, as I said, a kind of perfectionist, I could work on a poem. I mean, even the last sonnet I, I just finished, I mean, I worked on that thing for about three weeks, you know, and that's usually my speed. But the velocity of the news and the velocity of the surprise remains so much so that, you know, no one can keep up. So what I will say to you is that even deciding to have the same title was part of engaging that not being able to keep up, not being able to find what the line was or what the news was or that kind of, now what, what's he done now or what are we covering now? Like the speed of that, that confusion, I think, is something I wanted to tap into when I decided, you know, how to put the book together. So again, where the poems come from, I mean, one of the conversations I have with folks would be about this question of uh, race in it. And I would say, well, you know, even before this current administration, there were certain, you know, uh, sexism, racism, these things already existed. And so some days they were much more explicit to me. But this is one kind of thinking about like that history and what that means. American sonnet for my past and future assassin. Glad someone shot, deserved to be shot, finally, George Wallace. 
After you send your basket of bombs and berries for the girls, the bomb buried in Birmingham, after you add your palms to the psalms and palm-colored caskets of the girls, the bomb buried in Birmingham, I'll muster a pinch of prayer for you. You are the blind protagonist of a story that begins in my previous life. My work involved returning runaway slaves to slavery and ends with the image of a black nurse pushing your old ass in a wheelchair. Can you guess what black folk passing empty cotton fields feel, George Wallace? I damn you with the opposite of that feeling. I keep thinking I'm confessing for the first time the reason I fear you, and you keep asking why I'm telling this old story again. I mean, it still strikes you. It's something, uh, uh, someone deserving to be shot. It's, uh, I mean, sh- should we all just be angry now? Well, you know, the end of that poem, you know, if you just think about like the notion of the sonnet and the turn, no matter how I get into these poems, I'm consciously thinking about a turn from whatever that initial impulse the is. The form's gotcha. Right, that's right, the, the volta that happens. So yeah, it begins with, you know, he's shot and he's put in a wheelchair and it's like, well, good. I mean, this happens after Malcolm X and MLK and... Uh, uh, Bobby Kennedy and JFK. So there's a way that's like, it's always the wrong people that are sort of suffering the violence. And so it begins in that speed, but there's a turn with the questions coming on. Can you guess, you know, it's an empathetic question. Can you, have you thought about like that position or even the notion that it would be a black nurse pushing him, which I think is accurate actually, about the, the empathy of the nurse to push him around. And is he aware of that feeling? But the end of that poem is saying, I keep thinking that I'm confessing this to you. It's like a political statement of like, you know, racism is wrong, violence is wrong, and the exhaustion on the other side of that. And so it's a it's an implicit question for like, I know white people must get tired of hearing about race, you know, or hearing about this history that you're only, you've inherited in some ways. And so that question of like, are we still talking about this? How long are we gonna talk about this? And the speaker kind of saying like, I don't know if I can answer that, but it is something that we're going to keep talking about. We're not done yet. So to me, that turn is not anger. It's a curiosity. Mm -hmm. It's a question that drives the poem more than a sort of simplistic kind of anger in response. Yeah, sure. I mean, there's there's, there's kind of sadness and love and humor as well in these poems. I mean, there's there's also all that jazz as well. Another touchstone for Coleman, who gave her sonnets what she called a jazzified rhythm structure akin to pitter-patter and or scat. Were were you having fun? Were you kind of blowing your soul like she says too? Absolutely. I mean, again, she gives me permission to do that. I mean, what I've always liked in her work, uh, she has a poem like, Wanda, why ain't you dead yet? It's kind of a list poem. And she, Wanda, 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 why ain't you dead yet? And so that kind of like uh, edge, it's it's funny, but it's as funny as Richard Pryor is, you know? So there's always a kind of weight on the limit inside, inside the humor. And I certainly, I certainly respond to that kind of humor. So yeah, she certainly gave me permission to do it. And in these particular poems, as I said, I'm always thinking about... Uh, the the shape of that kind of humor, the turns on that kind of humor. American sonnet for my past and future assassin. The umpteenth thump on the rump of a badunkadunk stumps us. The lunk, the chump, the hunk of plunder. The umpteenth horny, honky stump speech pumps a funky rumble over air. The umpteenth slump in our humming democracy, a bumble bureaucracy with teeny tiny wings too small for its rumpled dumpling of a body. Humpty Dumpty, frumpy suit, 
the umpteenth honk of hollow thunder, the umpteenth believe me, the umpteenth grumpy, jumpy retort, chump change, casino game, tuxedo, teeth bleach, stump speech, junk science, junk bond, junk country, stump speech, the umpteenth boast stumps our toe, the umpteenth falsehood stumps our elbows and eyeballs, our nose, woes, wows, woes. <laughs> you say that you're kind of you're still writing them. They're still coming. But did do you find when you reached the end of this project, the end of those two hundred at least, did you find yourself in a different place? Well, I mean, each poem is a kind of local exercise in finding oneself in a different place. But you know, there is a question of like what poems really do. For me, I am just trying to like get from one day to the next. I'm trying to kind of make the best of a bad situation. So my option is just not to write. So um versus writing and into this kind of climate. But it hasn't changed yet and I don't actually I don't know if it will. I mean, one imagines there's a a line in the poems where I'm saying uh someone with a good memory and a better imagination. So really the gesture is just to try to imagine a better future even as I'm recalling George Wallace, I'm recalling the immediate moment or recalling yesterday or recalling Brett Kavanaugh, like these things are always the tug of that kind of very real memory and the potential of an imagined future means I can never say like what is the outcome. I mean, I know that people are responding and very positively to the books, but for me, I do still very much, uh, I'm very much overwhelmed until until something happens. I don't know what that's going to be, if it's going to be a change because of the politics or, or voting, but I'm hoping, but I do think... Uh, what we're seeing is really also evidence of, you know, the world, uh, even if we can kind of undo errors and mistakes. I feel like we're still we're not going to be able to shake this particular history for a little while. But do you think it's a work of the imagination at some level uh, to see better, to see past it? Certainly. Um, but you one is imagining in the midst of, you know, like imagining there is no fire when the house is burning is sort of that gesture. But that's how I try to get through it. And, you know, the great thing about the reception of the book is that I I'm happy that other people are responding in the same way. But I will say, you know, um, I do think of my poems the way I think of my food. Like I, I have no choice but to do this. Like the option for me, and this is in the book sometimes, um, it's like jumping out a window. I mean, those kinds of images of self-destruction or looking in the mirror and seeing oneself as the assassin. So I kind of feel like I have no choice but to kind of use this as a way to combat whatever's happening, these forces inside and outside. So it's not real resolution, if you know what I mean. It might be turns, it might be voltas, it might be shifts, but not closure and really not answers either in terms of what I think the book is after. And again, I would say I, I'm, I'm just happy that people would still embrace the gesture, even if I'm not like in a kind of James Baldwin-esque kind of way, offering real Remedies. I just, you know, it is what it is. I don't think that there's any, there's, there was no real solution. You know, there's no real answer for how we got here. So there's not going to be any real answer for how we get out of here. But I guess the division is so acute. I mean, you've seen the, the stramash of a Kavanaugh's nomination. You've got the mm-hmm. midterms just coming up now. And just, it seems like people don't know a way of talking to each other. Do you think poetry, where, where there is no straightforward answer, there's just ways of complicating it, complicating those feelings, complicating those ideas. Do you think that could be some sort of answer? Well, poetry is trying to give shape to things. So, and the sonnet is probably, I mean, it would be, it would be why I chose it because it is, it's a little box and I think of it as a kind of multidimensional box. So there is a poem where I'm talking about the six sides. So I do think of a sonnet as having these angles, you know, you're continuously turning it and that's where the Volta comes. 
Um, so again, it is a appropriate form for the moment, but I can't say again, if there's a real outcome again. I mean, I don't, you know, I have to sort of just speak as a poet. Like I do think poets mostly are engaged in questions more than answers. And so I have to sort of live comfortably with that and then hope that the other people, the readers who recognize that also are living comfortably with it. In the meantime, you know, there, there's humor, there's music, there's sound, there's image. There are still ways to derive a certain kind of pleasure even in a house that's on fire. But I do think if we're just talking like what I think when I wake up in the morning, we are in the midst of a dystopia. I think that uh, people are anticipating like if we, you know, a dystopia is coming based on what's happening. But I'm like, you know, we're there. Uh, we are in the midst of it. So the Brett Kavanaugh process is an indication of that. Like that whole process, it's sort of faultiness, it's craziness. And I think whoever, whatever side you're on in that argument, you one would have to say that this is evidence of something like a dystopia in the midst of uh you know, our everyday lives. And so that's pretty horrifying. I think we have to fix that as soon as possible. Yeah, for sure. I mean, can we grab a little flourishing of some sort even? Well, I haven't been doing a whole bunch of talk before the poems. This poem is the sort of last full poem before I do this kind of index thing where I'm trying to make poems. And I'm sort of thinking about, um, you know, Lorca at the end of, you know, World War II uh, being assassinated and his body never being found. And yet, you know, he still has outlived the assassin. So it's just a gesture towards this notion of uh, what did he really do, you know, against Franco immediately, like in the face of that. And you would say, well, on the face of it, he did nothing. He was assassinated and we never found out where his body was. But we know the beauty that he made and the relationships that he had, even with Salvador Dali, lived longer than what seemed to be the victory on the side of evil to kind of wipe out this beautiful person. And I think he was maybe 36 even. He was still in his 30s when he died. So again, is that like pure optimism or is it really saying like, I do think beauty uh, and courage, just courage in terms of one's self-expression is if that's what you got as a weapon, then that should be your weapon. American Sonnet for My Past and Future Assassin. When I am close enough, I am reminded of the mythic orchid called Lorca's Breath. Named by Salvador Dali, a decade after the poet was killed, the flower is said to sprout petals, the shade of a swollen moon, but once or twice before it dies. Also lost was the painting Dali painted of Lorca's writing hand, a long, almost animal shadow crawling over land shaped like a man with the body of a woman, a cuff of celestial texture, a button of ruby. The orchid's mouth is the shade of pussy. Its leaves hang as if listening to a lover whisper with her back to you. Rumor that this flower first appeared near wherever Lorca is buried, I know to be untrue. Terence Hayes was speaking with Richard Lee, Now, on the subject of speaking truth to power, this podcast is just one of many that The Guardian has been producing for over a decade. In fact, the word podcast was first coined in a Guardian article in 2004, and now we're bringing out a new one. Today in Focus is a daily news podcast that doesn't just tell you about the headlines, it takes you behind them in conversation with journalists to bring you a deeper understanding of the world. Listen to Today in Focus and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. 
Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. A third of students are less than happy about their university choice, new research by EY has revealed. The findings suggest that a digital rethink is essential to meet the expectations of students and staff. Universities can address this by putting the needs of the people they serve at the heart of their digital strategies. Learn more about the future of human-centered higher education at theguardian.com forward slash transforming higher education. This message was paid for by EY. And now I'm going to transport you back more than a thousand years. An easy enough sentence to write, an easy sentence to say. And now, thanks to the British Library, it's an easy step to make. Well, I am in this fabulous exhibition. You walk down, it's a bit like sort of walking down into the tomb, isn't it? And then suddenly there are all these fabulous jewel-like objects, some of which we've seen from television, all these various hoards that one's been hearing about for years that have been dug up. But they glitter as gold as they did when they were first worn, presumably. And then you go past all these hoards and you get to the real jewels for a book lover, which is these absolutely amazing manuscripts and books and all sorts. A lot of them are Psalters and Bibles, but they're also sort of all sorts of funny things like leases of land and wills to people's daughters. And <laughs> really, what you realise is how incredibly like us they are. And, I mean, that is both startling and incredibly touching. And also, you realise what a long time books can survive. Now, I'm here with Alison Hudson, who is curator of Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. That's a rather grand title. (laughs) And um, she has steered me towards probably the biggest thing in the whole exhibition, which is this fantastic codex. I'm not even going to try to pronounce what codex it is, because I'll leave you to do that, because it's all rather complicated. (laughs) This is the Codex Amiatinus. It gets its name from Monte Amiata in Tuscany, where it spent the best part of a millennium. But it was made in the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms near modern-day Newcastle at the monastery of Maguirmouth Jarrow, which was Bede's monastery. And it was taken in 716 by Bede's abbot, Chilfrith, as a gift to the Pope in Rome. Chilfrith dies en route, but we have the Pope's thank you letter, which implies that it reached Rome. Later in the Middle Ages, it was taken to Monte Amiata, but it hasn't been back to these shores for over 1,302 years. So we are absolutely thrilled it could make it back for this exhibition. So it's what it's about the size of a... Um, it wouldn't, let's put it like this, it wouldn't get onto Ryanair, onto a Ryanair <laughs> flight. <laughs> um, it's, it's, it's about the size of a travel case, but a lot thicker. Mm-hmm. And it's open at this amazing illustration which is of somebody, right? Is, it, is he writing it? <laughs> yes. And that is the prophet Ezra, portrayed as a scribe, and he's writing with a book on his lap instead of a, a desk. And behind him, we have a very early depiction of a library, which excites me as a librarian. It's a book cupboard. And you see the books are not lined up with their spines facing out as we would do today, but they're laid down flat. 
and that's a nine-volume Bible. But this book is so massive because it's all the books of the Bible all in one. Its spine is about a foot thick, and it is 2,060 pages long. And since it was made, vellum was made from animal skins, how many animals had to die for this book? We estimate over 500. That is a lot. Uh, Of what? So usually vellum books are made from cows, but recent research has suggested this might be sheep. But who would have provided these sheep? And wouldn't they have left great holes in people's livelihoods? So the monastery at Wyrmouth Jarrow was incredibly wealthy. It was founded by a nobleman, Benedict Bishop, or Biscop, who had been a warrior and who had supported the king. And he takes his wealth not to set up his own grand hall, but to set up a monastery. And he's he's so wealthy, he travels to Rome several times. In fact, it's said that the library at Wyrmouth Jarrow was a library from Rome. He brought so many books back. And Codex Amiatinus actually looks really Italian in both its script and its decoration, so much so that for many centuries, it was thought to be an Italian product. It was only at the end of the 19th century that an Italian scholar noticed, um, I don't know if you can see just there, how some of the letters on the dedication page were a different colour from some of the other letters. Some are in gold and some are in black. Exactly, some are are in this sort of pale brownish colour. So the ones that are in pale brown, somebody's erased the text underneath and has written over the top. It's been re-gifted. So originally it said, Abbot Chilfrith sent this to St. Peter's in Rome. Now it says that um, it was given to the Monastery of the Saviour at Amiata by Peter the Lombard. So he's very carefully scraped off the to and the from tag and he's changed it round so he can give it himself. Now this is is Anglo-Saxon. England, Europe. It's actually wider than England, isn't it? You've got stuff from all over Europe. What is the Anglo-Saxon period? So this exhibition spans the period from the eclipse of the Roman Empire in the 5th century all the way to the Norman conquest of 1066. And what is the earliest object you have here? The earliest object we have here actually isn't from the British Isles. It isn't even from Europe. It's a book that was made in the 4th century in North Africa. We know it was in England or in the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms by the 8th century because um, if you see the central column of red text, it was once a glorious manuscript with many columns and biblical quotations picked out in red. And in the central column of red text, you can see at the ends of some words, somebody's added a few letters. Those are in an English hand. When scribes had to write a lot, um, in the same way we do today, they'll abbreviate words. But this English scribe has just extended the ending of a few of those words. So we know it was in the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms by the 8th century. And I think that underlines very nicely the centrality um, and importance of these long-distance connections. You simply can't tell the story of the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms, and you certainly can't tell the story of writing in the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms without these long-distance connections. There's a, there are a surprising number of women in this exhibition. Tell us about that, because I'd always assumed that women were just chattels. Women are um, present from the very earliest English writing. We're very lucky to have on loan from Norwich Museum and also from the British Museum, some of the earliest writing in English. And one of those objects is a funerary urn. You can see it upstairs and inscribed on the side in runes is the female name uh, Heathabad. And... We don't know if she was the person in the urn or if she was the person who gave the urn, but that is one of the earliest surviving pieces of evidence for writing in English, and it's about a woman. And women were also involved at the moment when English stopped being written in runes and started being written in the Roman alphabet we use today because women were involved in the conversion of the Anglo-Saxons to Christianity, which is when that alphabet came in. So Athelbert of Kent, who was one of the kings who was converted by the popes of Rome, was married to Bertha, 
who was a Christian princess who came from outside of Paris, and she seems to have been instrumental in the conversion. In fact, Gregory the Great wrote her a letter to, to sort of try to figure out how the conversion was going from her. And as you say, this is interesting because from Athelbert's law codes, you do get the perception that women are chattel. Athelbert's law codes are the first extensive text in English. We're also lucky to have the only surviving medieval manuscript of the law codes on display, the Textus Refensis from Rochester Cathedral. And there it gives eight different ranks of women. And it's about how much you pay in terms of feud money and in terms of different offences against the person if somebody was raped or if they were hurt or, oh, or if they were killed. So all offences against women. Um, so it's about um, offences against all sorts of people. And you have to pay fines in the system them if you commit an offence against the person. If they're free men, you pay the fine to the man. But in Athelbert's Law Code, if it's a fine against a woman, you pay either her slave master or her husband or her father. So that presents one picture of women without agency. But if you look at the actual history of Athelbert's reign, his queen is hugely important. And, she, and if you think about the conversion to Christianity and its impact on society and culture through thousands of years of the history of the British Isles, she is a really central and important figure. And women are also involved in many major monasteries after the conversion, we have here a stone from Hartlepool Abbey. And St Hilda of Whitby is an incredibly powerful abbess, and she sponsors some of the first poetry in English. Um, and then I'm rather taken by Queen Emma. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes, so they're powerful women at the end of the period as well. And the 11th century was an incredibly turbulent time in the history of England, because at this stage we've gone from many little different kingdoms to one single kingdom of England. In the 11th century, the Vikings return, there's a lot of warfare, and there's a conquest. People always think of William the Conqueror's conquest of 1066, but England was conquered 50 years earlier by King Canute in 1016. Athelred the Unready dies, and his son is defeated by the Scandinavian leader, King Canute. And through all that period, one of the central political figures was Queen Emma. Um, she was the daughter of the Duke of Normandy. And when these Viking attacks are happening, Athelred the Unready blames the Normans for harboring the Vikings, and the Normans blame Athelred the Unready for the Viking attacks. They eventually make peace, encouraged by the Pope, and as part of the peace deal, in spring 1002, the Duke of Normandy sends his sister, Emma, to England to marry the widowed Athelred. And during the Viking invasion, she perhaps returns to Normandy with her children, but after Canute's conquest, um, Canute marries her and she becomes Canute's queen. And she's really important for Canute's regime. We have on display here at the British Library a charter where the charter writer is very careful to mention that Emma's advising Canute to give this gift to the Archbishop of Canterbury. She seems to be very central to his court. And I think it's no mistake that the only surviving manuscript portrait of Canute from the Newminster Libra Vitae is also a portrait of Emma. She's standing next to him. And I think that symbolizes how important she was for his reign. She's also the mother of two kings, and this is where it gets a bit awkward. She has a son by Athelred, Edward the Confessor, and a son by Canute, Hartha Canute, who both survive into the 1040s. And what makes Emma extraordinary, there are many powerful Anglo-Saxon queens. We have here a coin of Queen Cunethrith of Mercia. We have records of Athelflaed, Lady of the Mercians, Alfred the Great's daughter, who was more militarily successful than he was. But what makes Emma really stand out is that she's the first woman in English history who has a party political written for her. It's called In Praise of Queen Emma. It was written for her by a monk from Saint-Bertin in what is now northern France. And it starts, Oh, Emma, you excel all of your sex in terms of your admirability of life. So this is in praise of Queen Emma. And what's interesting about it is it looks almost like a sampler 
because it's very brightly coloured lettering mm -hmm. and it's sort of much more picturesque than a lot of the other texts we've seen. I think the beautiful decoration you've noticed is a sign of how high status this volume was and all the different pigments and how careful the scribe had to be because he's alternated the colours red, green, red, blue, red, green, red, blue, halfway down the first page and there's this really amazing initial of two serpents or dragons springing out to form the S of Salos, which sort of hello. It's halfway between a, a canthus or something, isn't it, and a serpent? Yes, exactly. Um, and this shows all the different sort of artistic influences you get in this period. A little bit of foliar decoration, a little bit of the biting beast you see from earlier art as well. And, um, and then opposite this, the writing, there's a picture which is presumably of Queen Emma. That is indeed Queen Emma. I mean, she is taking tribute. She doesn't have her king there keeping an eye on her. So that stage, Emma would have been a widow. But she remained very powerful, even though she was no longer the reigning queen. The little kneeling figure who's presenting something to her is the author of this book. And it's, he's depicted giving her this book in praise of her, which is also a party political in her favour. And picking out from behind the curtains are her two sons, Hartha Canute and Edward the Confessor. So it's both a literal and a figurative family portrait of one big happy family. And it's a wonderful party political written um, to try to influence things. She's still powerful into the range of her sons. It's a little book. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can imagine her carrying it around with her, whereas a lot of these books you couldn't carry around with you. Where is it kept now? Where has it been all this time? I mean, it's a long time for it to survive, isn't it, a little book like this? Mm -hmm. It's actually had quite an adventurous history. It was in Germany for many years before it was bought by the British Library. And I think it's, it also reflects changing perceptions of women's role in history, because what you can't see, because it's open, is on the spine of the book, it's labelled as the deeds of Canute, her husband. Whereas now it's recognised as one of the earliest political tracts and one of the earliest summaries of the life of a, of a woman politician in England. Would Emma only have read it, or who would have read this book? Given the very political nature of what she's trying to say, we imagine she would have tried to distribute it, or at least have it heard, or at least she's trying to get her side of the story across. We hear about fake news today. Well, there's a little bit of medieval fake news going on with some of this. But I think what's interesting about this is we see how she's using the written word to try to influence politics. And for the best part of half a century, a really crucial half a century in terms of the history of England, Emma was a really major player. And when you say she would have tried to put it out, does that mean that there would be other copies of it? I mean, or would it just be a question of it being read out to selected people? How was politics spread around? In the case of this book, it could have been read out. There could have been other copies. This is the only surviving copy from the pre-conquest period. It's actually a remarkable survival. We think it comes from around 1041, so very soon after it was written. For many years, it was thought to be the only copy of the book, until a later medieval copy of an earlier manuscript was discovered just a few years ago. And this copy is extraordinary because it has a completely different ending. In this ending to this book, Emma is portraying Hartha Canute and Edward as one big happy family. Hartha Canute was probably in trouble when he invited Edward to come and be his joint ruler. But in this, he does it out of brotherly love. They're so affectionate and their love grows every day and they're one big happy family. So she's painting both a figurative portrait with her, with her two sons and a portrait in words of a wonderful happy family. Hartha Canute dies at a wedding feast, he chokes. And 
shortly thereafter, it seems the ending to this book was changed. Athelred the Unready, Emma's first husband, is not mentioned at all in the first book. You never hear who Edward's father is. So the endings changed very quickly, it seems, when Edward becomes king to say, Athelred was wonderful, he was glorious, and we're sure Edward will be just as glorious. And I think that sort of gives the sense, too, of how this was plugged right into contemporary politics, that it was worth changing the ending to try to change contemporary politics. What did changing the ending mean? It meant literally pulling pages out and replacing them or painting over words and changing them? So this copy has what appears to be the original ending when Hartha Knut and Edward are jointly ruling. Unfortunately, the other medieval copy that survives comes from later in the medieval period, so we're not sure what it was being copied from, whether that was something that had been tampered with or whether she asks the scribes to write a completely new copy but with, with a different ending. This, I have to say, is an absolute thrill. This is the Doomsday Book. And um, I have two copies of the Doomsday Book. I mean, copies, what should I say? I, I got very interested in um, researching the little bit of southern England that I came from at one point. And what is so humbling about it, again, is that it, it's, it's, it's got ordinary people in it, hasn't it? And somebody who had three cows, where I grew up, there was a farmer with three cows and a mill. And the mill is actually still there. There is a mill on that bit, which I think is the bit of water. Do you have lots of stories like that? What is amazing about Doomsday Book is how much data there is. Long before the internet era of big data, long before even the censuses of the 19th century, it, it's not comprehensive, it misses out London, like William the Conqueror dies, so bits appear to have been left out. But it covers most of the country, and it covers it to a really astonishing level of detail. It tells you about people at the lowest level of society. It tells you about slaves. It tells you even about how many beekeepers were in England. There were 16. And it gives you data... 16 beekeepers in the whole of England? Or the 16 people who are primarily identified as beekeepers. <laughs> and over 13,400 places are mentioned in Doomsday Book. And there are thousands and thousands of people. Doomsday Book was based in large part on the governmental structures that already existed. It's astonishing how quickly the data was gathered. At Christmas 1085, William the Conqueror commissions Doomsday Book, and by August of the following year, all the data was collected and the scribe of Great Doomsday Book got to work. So it was a really quick process. So do we know anything about who actually wrote it, the scribe who actually did this? It's a huge piece of work. We know that it was largely done by one person. And in fact, we have here in the exhibition one of the draft sort of bits he used. So commissioners would have gone round in their circuits, which were divided into groups of uh, several counties or several shires. And the commissioners um, didn't survey the counties where they themselves owned land. It was all very cleverly arranged. And there seems to have been some draft versions done by these circuits that were then sent to this single scribe. And we have one of them here in the exhibition. It's known as Exxon Doomsday. And if you look closely at the, the, the page that's on display in the exhibition, you'll see what looks like a dirty mark. And if you look closely, it's the imprint of somebody's spearhead. Somebody's come in and laid his dirty spear down. And that, I think, gives you an insight into what the Doomsday um, scribe is working with. We know he gets a bit quicker towards the end, as William the Conqueror ails and as the project um, comes to completion. But we also get the sense of people coming in, putting their dirty spears down, and we have some of the drafts he even worked from.
No, a lot of what we've been talking about is, is very serious, but I have spotted some naughty bits and some jokes, and I gather you and Claire are responsible for seeking out little bits of, uh, sort of anecdotes, really, that bring these characters to life. Tell us about Aldhelm. So Aldhelm was abbot of Malmesbury and afterwards bishop of Sherborne. He died around 709, and he is known for writing some of the most difficult Latin to survive from the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. Some really complex stuff that he wrote for the Abbess of Barking and to some of his students. And this is a letter he wrote to one of his students. It survives in a later copy. And in this letter, he's telling his student off for going to Ireland to study rather than going to the place where Aldhelm was trained. Aldhelm was trained at Canterbury by the North African abbot, Hadrian, and Archbishop Theodore of Canterbury. And Theodore came from the area that is now Turkey. They set up an incredible school, um, which may have introduced the study or reintroduced the study of Greek to the island of Britain. They, or, and certainly to the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms, they introduced the study of Greek. They taught astronomy, they taught poetry. And to emphasize his point about why you should go to Hadrian and Theodore, who as far as Aldhelm are concerned, are the greatest teachers ever, as opposed to going to Ireland to study, Aldhelm has started this letter, um, you can see on the page, almost every other word, and in some lines, every word begins with a P. And that's because in this period, we think, Irish pronunciation of P and B was, was very close together. So you couldn't necessarily hear the difference. So he's making sort of pointers for his pupil that you shouldn't go somewhere where they can't pronounce P the way I would pronounce P. So one of the wonderful things about this, apart from the fact that it's probably, I defy anybody to find an earlier Irish joke than that. But one of the wonderful things is that in this Brexit era, when everything's drifting apart, is that we're beginning and ending with North Africa, although it isn't an exhibition about North Africa. So it's about the joined upness of things throughout this period, which is something completely unexpected to me. When we were preparing this exhibition, we were focusing on the original evidence for the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms as preserved in the British Library's amazing collections and also through loans. And what we've learned from going back to the original evidence is that it's simply impossible to tell the story of the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms without considering some of these long-distance connections. Codex Amiatinus has come back for the first time in 1,302 years from Italy, where people travelled regularly. There are these connections to North Africa in some of the glorious illuminated manuscripts in the later section from the 10th and 11th century, there's lapis lazuli that we believe was mined in Afghanistan. And of course, there are artistic influences traveling backwards and forth. We have um, Hadrian and Theodore from North Africa and from the Middle East influencing early English education. And these stories, you just can't escape them. They're in lots of the sources. With thanks to Alison Hudson, the Anglo-Saxon Kingdom's Art Word War Exhibition is open now at the British Library in London and runs until February 2019. I cannot recommend it more strongly. Terence Hayes' American Sonnets for My Past and Future Assassin is with Penguin, out now. Next week, when things aren't quite as they seem to be on first appearance, psychologist and geneticist Robert Plomin argues that our nature, our DNA, is a much stronger influence than has previously been thought in terms of explaining our behaviour. And Ivy Pakoda explains why her latest novel, Wonder Valley, isn't crime fiction, despite being claimed by Dennis Lehane and Michael Connolly as one of their own kind. Until then, as ever, please subscribe and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. And join the discussion on Twitter, at Guardian Books, or by leaving a comment on the podcast page. 
but from me, Claire Armistead, and my producer, Susanna Tresillian. Thank you for listening, and goodbye. from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And... Don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. A third of students are less than happy about their university choice, new research by EY has revealed. The findings suggest that a digital rethink is essential to meet the expectations of students and staff. Universities can address this by putting the needs of the people they serve at the heart of their digital strategies. Learn more about the future of human-centered higher education at theguardian.com forward slash transforming higher education. This message was paid for by EY.